You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, this morning as we have a little bit of unsettling with the wiring and things, we just want to settle ourselves down and, and to be ready to look into your word, to hear what you have to say, to, to love the word as you have given it to us out of your heart and your son is the embodiment of the word. And we thank you for that. We thank you for salvation. This morning, Lord, we look to you for instruction, for correction, so that we might live righteous lives. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the last few months, we, last month we've been in um, studying the Reformation. And so we left off, I believe, the 24th of September. Yeah, that's what I have here, the 24th of September. We finished up chapter 12. And I've worked out the introduction to chapter 13 so that it's something of a review. Um, so we will be slightly reviewing the first 12 chapters. But uh, let's, before we get started, let's go ahead and read the whole of chapter 13. It's a short chapter, 13 verses long. So we should be able to get through it in less than two years. 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions, give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man... I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. According to BibleGateway.com, 1 Corinthians is the eighth most studied chapter on the Internet based on user access. Psalms was first. I had a, a PowerPoint for this, but I seem to have misplaced my laptop. <laughs> so you can pray for that. I really have. I don't know where it's at. And there's a lot of information on that thing. that <laughs> I really would not like to get into the Russians' hands. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there might be a reward. Yeah. So the, first, the ten most popular, uh, according to Bible Gateway, were Psalms, Matthew, John, Romans, Proverbs, Genesis, Luke, and then eight was 1 Corinthians, uh, Isaiah, and Acts. Excuse me, the most studied book. 1 Corinthians is the most studied book, not chapter. In their blog, Bible Gateway, they also list the most popular of the, tw- that, uh, the, most popular of the top 25 based on user access is 1 Corinthians 13. 
the most popular chapter studied based on user access. In his book, um, The 31 Greatest Chapters in the, Mike, in the Bible, Mike Murdoch lists 1 Corinthians 13 as number 24. What is the appeal of this chapter? It's pretty well defined into three distinct sections. The necessity of possessing love, which is verses 1 through 3. Its glorious characteristics, verses 4 through 7. And its eternal durability, verses 8 through 13. There is so much that can be said about this love and about and so much that can be said in explaining what it is and what it is not, that I will try to, now don't laugh, I will try to do it in as few words as possible and never use a sentence when a paragraph will do. There were four or possibly six words, up to six words in, at, in use at the time of the New Testament that would describe the different kinds of love. And I wanted to have those up there so you could see them, because once you see them, you'll recognize them. But the first one is eros. This Greek word was not used in the New Testament. It refers to sexual love and probably derived its name from the mythical god of love or vice versa, the god of love derived its name from the word. Either way, they're very closely tied together. The second word is storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, the type of love signifying the natural affection between kinfolk. This word appears only occasionally in the New Testament and only in compound form. The third word, and I'm sure you all will recognize this one, phileo. Uh, it's where we get the word Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. This Greek word for love signifies spontaneous natural affection with more feeling than reason. Strong's exhaustive concordance defines it to be a friend to, to be fond of, to be fond of an individual or an object, having affection for as denoting attachment, a matter of sentiment or feeling. We often misuse it, this kind. We often misuse the word love and make lots of weird noises. Oh, I know what that is. We often misuse this ourselves. We love our wives, but we love potato chips. Really? Is my wife only potato chips? Now, she knows the difference. She understands context. But Greek often provides more information in the word than our words do. So we have to use modifiers. Often we have to use modifiers. The fourth word is agape. This Greek word for love is by far the one that appears the most frequently in the New Testament. It is generally assumed to mean moral goodwill, which proceeds from esteem, principle, or duty, rather than attraction or charm. It means to love the undeserving, despite disappointment and rejection. Did you get that? Despite disappointment and rejection. Though agape has more to do with moral principle than with inclination or liking, it never, ever, ever means the cold religious kindness shown from duty alone as scriptural examples abundantly pro pro provide and prove. The love of God is never a cold, distant, well, I got to do this. I might as well do it right. My daddy told me to do things right the first time. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. It is a, a caring for and a giving to regardless of the return or the outcome. The fifth word is ludus, which is the Greek word's idea of playful love, which is often referred to the affection between little children, the little kids playing together. And then the last one, and I found this very interesting. I didn't know about this word. I, I hadn't really studied all of the Greek words for love. It's pragma, where we get the word pragmatic. It, is a, a mature, it was a, love, a mature love known as pragma. This was the deep understanding that developed, now get this, between long married couples 
pragma was about making compromises to help the relationship work over time and showing patience and tolerance. So that word is another Greek word. It's never used in the New Testament. The, four, the three that are used, phileo, agape, and uh, actually the and storge as a compound, those are the three that are used. The others, the two of them, are never used. Actually, three of them are never used, but we'll get to a, a, a little bit of information about why. The first four are the main ones when spoken of when dealing with biblical texts. And eros was never used in the New Testament. In fact, it is this bit of information that is often referred to when the subject comes up, the fact that eros was never used in the New Testament. The love that is spoken of in this chapter is the selfless, giving, agape love that the Father has bestowed upon us in His Son, the book of Hebrews says, in His Son, Jesus Christ. It is a love that takes no thought for itself and remembers no injuries. It only seeks to serve, and it is delighted in that service no matter the response. Now, I want a couple of disclaimers here. I'm not talking about luff, what Walter Martin used to call luff, spelled L-U-F, which overlooks everything. That isn't what we're talking about. Sometimes love has to be difficult and stern and hard in a, in a proper way. But that takes more than just an instantaneous reaction. That takes thought for us. For God, it doesn't. He's instantaneously properly love, loving. But for us, sometimes in order to make the right loving decision, we have to back away from a situation and think it through and get counsel and calm ourselves down and be careful. God never has to do that. He's instantaneously perfectly loving. We are not. And we need to remember that when we're trying to react to something in love. And we'll get to all of those as we get to the, to the breakdown of the word, chapters, verses 4 through 8. Um, that'll be a marvelous time. Now, I won't have anything new that hasn't been discovered over the last 19 centuries since this book, or 20 centuries since this book was written. So maybe we can just revisit and reaffirm and firm up what love means, what it should mean, how we should express it, and how we should learn to uh, respond to the Father because of His love for us. So it's not the squishy feelings that most have come to associate with the idea of love. There's nothing wrong with those feelings, but they are secondary or even tertiary. Too much today and even historically, the feelings have had to precede, precede the actions in order for something good to be done. If I don't feel good about it, if I don't like it, if it doesn't make me feel good, then I'm not going to do something good in return. That's not the love that's talking about here. This, this love seeks to do the good first without any intention of res response for itself. <laughs> this is the kind of love that takes action whether feelings come or not. It's not an if it feels good, do it kind of love. It's a do, it's, if it's right, do it. If it's loving, do it. That's the kind of love. Although it may seem also like this chapter is another one of those jewels dropped in a muddy road, it is not. So we have 1 Corinthians all the way up to 12 where we list this litany of difficulties and then 14 where Paul goes back into the difficulties. And in the middle of those, in kind of like a break, is this chapter on love. It is not an accident. When Paul finished chapter 12 with the exciting news that he was going to show the Corinthians a more excellent way, he was referring to a better way to utilize the gifts. That better way is by exercising every single one of the gifts in the context of God-given agape love. How better to meet the needs of those that I am prophesying to than to be, do it because I love them and I want the very best for them no matter what. If I'm going to be given in service as my gift, 
I can never serve better than if I, if I love the ones that I am serving and I do it out of a desire to help others be their best. If I'm teaching out of love, my desire will always be to do the very best teaching I can do that will encourage, uplift, bless, and instruct those being taught. If I'm going to be an exhorter, if I am an exhorter, love is needed to temper that exhortation so that other believers will be lovingly prompted in the Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 sort of way. If it is giving, if, and love motivates my giving, then God can use that giving like a laser beam to bring joy to the very ones who need it. If it is leadership, and I love those that I am tasked with leading, truly love them, then my praying will be more effective, and those directions that I'm prompted to give, to give them will be given only to build up, to strengthen, and to, to direct in the Lord. If it is mercy that God has given as my gift, a proper agape love will know when to be merciful and when to be firm. Those two can go together, but only in the context of love. If it is wisdom, love will direct that wisdom to truly bring practical knowledge to those who need it. If it is knowledge, God-given agape love will temper that knowledge with humility and direct it in a manner that will bring the greatest profit to those who can benefit from it. If faith, that special faith given to those who can operate through the most trying circumstances, Operating that faith in love will inspire others that God can be trusted. He can be trusted. If love drives my evangelism, then those being evangelized will more likely see the truth is being offered out of great concern for their souls and for their eternity. And if I have been given the gift of shepherding, this gift of love will be most needful to exercise proper oversight of the flock that God puts under my responsibility. Now when the King James translates the word agape as charity, it loses some of its strength, some of its original depth and punch that the original word had in our society today. In our day and age, the word charity is more associated with almsgiving, with caring for the poor, with giving things into uh, groups that then benefit the poor. That's not what this word says, and it does, but now that's not to say that this word doesn't have some of that concept in it, but it is more of a demonstration word, and that it has at its heart the active outworking of a selfless desire to better others no matter the cost and no matter the reward. As a matter of fact, reward isn't even thought of. When later translators were working on this during the early centuries after the closing of the canon, the Latin words amor and caritas were considered by Jerome, for example. The first was rejected, amor was rejected, and the second, caritas, which still carried some of the force of the original Greek word in that it was rendered from the Latin concept of dear or costly. In other words, what we're doing for someone else out of agape love may cost us, most likely will cost us, and we're glad of that. We're delighted with that. It doesn't, it doesn't break our step one bit. Later etymological changes gave the idea of alms given, almsgiving to the word. Today, a better translation is the simple word love with descriptive notes attending. And so we say selfless love. We say unconditional love. We say, and those kinds of things. We say brotherly love, and we know what that means. We say married love. We know what that means. All of these adjectives give a depth to the word that we may need in our society today. Now, imagine that you were Paul's amanuensis, his secretary, and you've been carefully recording everything he said in the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians. It may not have been unusual for you to, for your, for you to have your heart sink and then raise at different times throughout that seesawing narrative. What a change it would have been for that person to go from cataloging, cataloging stupid sins, misuse of scripture, self-elevation, blasphemy, indifference to the needs of others, and even accidental idolatry to this 
attain to the highest and greatest of the gifts of God, the gift of true, agape, self-serving, uh, self, selfless, there we go, selfless love. So as we work through this chapter, it will be important to remember that everything hangs upon this infrastructure, the superstructure of love. Now, we can, love can be firm, but it will never be distant. Love can be caring, but it will never be sloppy. Love can be magnificently uplifting, but it will, that is not to say that it will be confined to romanticism. John MacArthur has five keys. He gives us five keys to the summary of the teachings about love. Number one, love is commanded. We are commanded to love one another. There, I could have provided scriptures, but they're all love one another, love one another, all throughout the Gospels and the epistles. Number two, love is already today possessed by born-again Christians, by believers. Number three, love is the norm in Christian living. It's not an unusual aberration. It is the normal Christian life. Number four, love is the work of the Holy Spirit. And number five, love must be practiced to be genuine. You can say you love someone all you want, but until you actually do for that someone, they will never know, really. They'll know the dictionary definition you gave them, but they'll never know until you actually love them. If Paul was going to teach a better way, and of the way of love, and if it was important for the Corinthians to learn this, the implication is that they did not have the kind of relationships that characterized uh, love with one another. Where have they fallen down? Well, actually, the list is quite comprehensive. And this is our little bit of a review. Number one, there were quarrels in the church. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. <laughs> number two, there was, there's a whole bunch of numbers here, so... You're writing them down. Number two, there was spiritual elitism. 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 28. Because the foolishness of God, Paul is talking about wisdom versus foolishness, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may magnify the things that are. He's, he's convincing, trying to convince the Corinthians that this idea of being spiritually fantastic is a dumb idea. God's stupidity, if there was such a thing, is far beyond the wisdom of all men. Number three, there were, or number four, there were divisions. First Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, well, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Who is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each, each one. The next one, whatever number we're on. The Corinthians apparently were suspicious and dismissive of the Apostle Paul and of Apollos. 1 Corinthians 4, 3, and 3 through 5. But to me, Paul says, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul was being examined by the Corinthians. Next, there was sexual immorality of a kind not even heard among pagans. Wrong kind of love. This is not love at all. This is destruction. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Next, 
there were wrong associations with, the, with blatantly, there were wrong associations with wrong brethren. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous of swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world, aliens, area 51 in Israel. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. That's the one he was talking about. So they were having wrong associations. They were suing one another in the Gentile courts. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? They were suing one another over apparently, actually they shouldn't have been suing one another at all, but over superficial and silly things. There were instances of other types of immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee immorality, Paul says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. There was dysfunction in the marriages in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Stop depriving one another except for, agreement by a time, except for by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control, self-control. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband if the husband should not divorce his wife. Marital dysfunction in the church. In the church. Some of the members of the church were not caring for their brethren, especially if they were weaker Christians. There was indiscriminate attendance at idol temples contributing to division in the church. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 and 9 through 9 says, However, not all men have this understanding or this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Some were maligning the apostle and Paul and apparently reporting false information about his method of earning a living. 1 Corinthians 9, 12 through 15. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. They were, they were condemning him for his method of earning a living. There was apparently a problem with idolatry as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, such as common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure. Therefore, my brethren, flee idolatry. Some women were overstepping the cultural bounds and giving pagans wrong impressions about the church of God. In chapter 11, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. We thought we went through that. It was a cultural thing, and it was causing the church at Corinth there to render to the pagans a false view about the Christian, about, about the, the gospel. And then the Lord's Supper was being violated with selfish and dismissive attitudes towards one another and towards the celebration itself. And we read through that. We've studied that a number of times where the, the rich were coming early and eating all the food so that the, 
poor and the servants had no access to, to food. They had to finish their chores, finish their work at home before they could get there. And so often they would come in a little later. And so they were not even observing the Lord's Supper in the manner it should have been observed. The misuse of spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. There was such misuse. And spiritual elitism that it threatened to sunder the church completely. 1 Corinthians 12. And we'll finish off with this one. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So up to this point, these were some of the difficulties that Paul was addressing. We'll find some more as we go farther on. But uh, clearly the church at Corinth needed to take a breath, step back, and learn to be loving towards one another, truly loving in a service-oriented sort of way, and that's what Paul will address in this chapter. Now, it has been said numerous times that to pick this chapter apart is much like picking apart a beautiful flower, so that when you are finished, you have neither beauty nor flower. I would posit, however, that we have the flower always right here. It's right here in chapter 4. We can read the whole thing. We can appreciate, we can learn to appreciate each and every petal in the flower by looking at it separately, while we still have the whole flower in our hands in the Word of God. We have the advantage of, as we delve into this chapter, of a completely constructed rose always available to us simply by reading the chapter again and again, and that's not such a bad idea anyway. Any questions before we dive into 1 Corinthians? Okay. So chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I thought about doing some sort of a <laughs> object lesson and bringing some of the stuff that I have in my possession that makes lots of noise and doing it, you know, making the noise up here. But I, I think we can all picture. Any, any of you have children who are learned first when they first started to learn the violin and you it, it it took people to restrain you from committing suicide now you listen to them you go i'm sure glad i weathered that but or maybe the first few notes a child learns on a trombone or on a drum well interestingly enough <laughs> those uh, we we kind of we kind of make note of that, that those would be the ones that would be the most difficult probably to endure. It's interesting that that's what Paul uses, a, a clanging, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So using hyperbole in the first two verses, Paul begins to get at the substance of the Corinthian problem, and indeed a problem that has plagued and will continue to plague mankind until the Lord comes. The idea in this first is that if Paul were able to speak in every language of men, and of even the heavenly host, angels, using soaring oratory, and eloquence beyond belief, putting his sentences together in such a manner that everybody understood them, the implied punctuation as well as the actual punctuation was correct. He never used an adjective out of place. His adverbs also always positively modified, and, and there were no hanging prepositions. Everything he said was perfect. It would still, without love, be like a noise that we try to get away from. How many of you like to hear chainsaws? Now, okay, okay not, except for the loggers in here. <laughs> Maybe a chainsaw was a bad choice. How about, how, oh, I know. Trains <laughs> at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. 
Or, or the sound of a bearing going bad in your engine. Oh, you, want to, you, you just don't want to believe it's happening. This is what Paul is trying to get across here. This is a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, a disgusting noise that people don't want to hear. They want to get away from it. This is, it's wicked. They want to plug their ears. They want to scowl and turn away, attempting to get away from the noise as quickly as possible. This is not some special verse to be twisted so that out of it comes the idea that men can learn the language of, lang the language of angels. The language of angels? Say that three times fast. The language of angels. Every time an angel spoke in the scriptures, he spoke in the language of the hearers. They didn't have to get a translator. So just keep that in mind in the background. Sayers, but not doers, are just such noise in our ears. All people that are all hat and no cowboy. They, they say they're going to do something, but they never follow through. That's the kind of noise we don't like to hear, too. <laughs> people that are acting out of service speak of a love that, that speaks eloquent. They, they, they speak a love that speaks more eloquently than volumes and paragraphs of sayings, of, of wit, of humor, of elegance, of persuasiveness. It's the people that do the love that are not the clanging gongs and the noisy cymbals or the noisy gongs and the clanging cymbals. People that say they love us but don't act like it are a grating on our ears. In New Testament times, the pagan deities, Sibeli, Bacchus, and Dionysius, were worshipped by devotees who would speak in ecstatic noises while they were accompanied by others who were smashing gongs. There was no, no musical content to this. They would smash gongs, bang on cymbals, and blare trumpets. They weren't playing a song. They were just as much noise as possible while these other people writhed on the ground and spoke in ecstatic languages or pretended to be speaking in ecstatic. This is, what, this is how the, these three deities, at least for sure, were worshipped. This entire chapter, specifically devoted to the concept of agape love, is actually a pointed dissertation to the Corinthians about their complete misunderstanding of what it means to be truly spiritual. These, were the, these, were, these people in these pagan celebrations were considered spiritual. That was spirituality of the day. And Paul is teaching the Corinthians, especially in this chapter, and throughout all of 1 Corinthians, that that is not spiritual. They thought that if they expressed themselves in the loud gifts and made a name for themselves, they were being spiritual. Paul, on the other hand, is teaching service, putting others first, putting oneself last. One commentator put it this way. He said, it is hard to escape the implication that what is involved here are two opposing views as to what it means to be spiritual. For the Corinthians, it meant tongues, wisdom, knowledge, and and then in parentheses, and pride, but without a commensurate concern for truly Christian behavior. For Paul, it meant, first of all, to be full of the Holy Spirit, which therefore meant to behave as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, of which the ultimate expression is always to walk in love. Thus, even though these sentences reflect the immediate context, Paul's concern is not simply with their over-enthusiasm about tongues, but with the larger issue of the letter as a whole, where their view of spirituality has caused them to miss rather widely the gospel and its ethics. So their idea of spirituality had moved them completely away from what the gospel teaches, which is others first. Christ is most important. Lift up God. This kind of spirituality lifts me up, makes me special, makes me someone that you need to look to. You need to have my interpretation. You need to have my understanding. I, I had a relative who used to wear a t-shirt. Everybody's entitled to my opinion. <laughs> he really meant it too. Um, 
That's not what spirituality is. Spirituality is service. And so Paul is, that's what this whole chapter is going to be essentially devoted to. The service to others that true agape love is. And how all the gifts that he talked about in chapter 12 and when he goes into chapter 14 to really, really nail, drill down on the gift of tongues and other things. How those gifts have to be bedrockly firmed, firmly, firmly established in love in service to others, in care for others. And then they can be used properly. Other than that, and I, I kind of took a little bit of umbrage. He, he, he doesn't say they're, they're not as good if they're not done this way. It's not going to be as if he says they're nothing. He uses the Greek word for zero. Nada, zip, useless. It's like a surgeon. You broke your leg and he operates on your ear. So you can hear him making a mistake, I guess. Way useful, way useful, way useless, I should say. Any questions about verse 1? <laughs> Was that a banging symbol? Clanging gong? So verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, Paul said, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Moving to the more important gifts, even if a believer was able to wrangle with the Scripture and render it understandable and wholesome and helpful to others, if he was the one who understood every mystery that the Scripture contains and he was able to convey to others in an understandable way the knowledge of the ages in a correct, systematic, and vital way, but he did not have love, he did not do it in a loving manner with a true caring heart for those whom he was serving, he would be zero. And the value of his dissertation to others would be nothing. Now, that's not to say that the spiritual, the truly spiritual who hear accurate teaching can't just derive something from it. But for him, it's nothing. And for the, for the ongoing worthy, worthiness and the spreading of the kingdom of God, it's nothing. Because it has to be done in love. It has to be done in caring. And that's why it's so hard sometimes when someone comes up with really good information and you think it's good information and you've, you've checked it and it's scriptural but you, you know that they're just doing it because they've got to do it. That's why it's, it can be so hard on believers sometimes to sit under that kind of teaching. The person has to not only be understanding and having, having, had, having had God help him to understand what he's teaching or she is teaching, but they have to love the people that they're teaching. They have to love the words that they're speaking. They have to love the Spirit of God who has given that and recognize that it did not come from themselves. I would think that probably one of the most important character qualities necessary for true love is, is a concomitant understanding and commitment to the, the idea of humility. Nothing, nothing that we come up with is on our own. It's from God and from others. So if he did not do it in, his, in, a, in a loving manner, it would be nothing. In the next chapter, Paul teaches that prophecy is the greatest of the gifts of God that he has given because this is the gift that renders God's truth to his people in an understandable way. Even this great gift without love is of no consequence. <laughs> the gift of faith given in such measure to a person that they were actually able to remove mountains as Jesus talked about in the Gospels would be an incredible gift. If it was exercised without love, it would be useless in the lives of, others, of, of other believers. Useless in communicating the God of the universe to unbelievers as well. An elder in a Bible church who is also available to teach and preach and even counsel but is not actually physically available himself to care for and love the members of his flock is a useless creature. 
If he has no time to pour himself into the lives of others in a loving, caring way, Scripture says he's nothing. That doesn't mean he has to spend all his waking hours involved in others' lives. But he, he does have his own responsibility and commitments. But on balance, the shepherds of the body should actually be shepherding. They should be available. They should be caring. They should be loving. They should be anguished over the difficulties that are going on. They should be animated by the excitement that's happening. And they should be devoted to those that they are responsible to. We can get a glimpse of love in action when we look at the woman in Proverbs 31. All of her actions are animated by love of her husband and her family. And the list is impressive. But the list isn't a list of feelings. It's a list of actions. Verse 12, she does her husband good. Verse 13, she looks for opportunities to work with her hands in delight that might benefit others. Verse 14, she brings in food for her family. Verse 15, she rises early and takes care of those in her home. Verse 16, she is industrious and entrepreneurial in making certain that the needs of her loved ones are cared for. Verse 18, she keeps appropriately busy in a manner that will best benefit the home, the household, and her husband. Verse 19, she makes things with her own hands to benefit others, to bless others. Verse 20, she cares for the poor, those who have obviously no way of giving anything back to her. Verse 21, she sees to all the physical needs of her family. Verses 22 through 24, she buys and sells again with an eye towards taking care of those under her care. Verse 25, she's not a worrier. She knows God's in control. In verse 26, she teaches the very things that she expressed and she showed in all those previous verses. She teaches to those who are under her. These are the events and happenings in the life of someone who puts their love into action, puts their action into service of others. This is not noise. This is a symphony. This is beautiful music when people love others, act like it, act upon it, and those other people are served and they know they're being served. Any questions, comments, or additions, deletions, subtractions? We'll finish up with verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. <coughs> Still in hyperbole, if I do this great thing, but it's not done in love, it's zero. If I do this, if I think this great thing, no love, zero. If I Act like this, no love, zero. Paul is communicating something to the Corinthians and to us here. Somehow, humans believe that if they do something kind for someone else, no matter the attitude during the kindness, and that might be an oxymoron, I'd have to think about it some more. No matter the attitude during the kindness, it speaks volume and in some ways renders them more acceptable to God. Throughout history, there have been those who believe that self-denial and self-humiliation and even self-affliction gave them some sort of spiritual merit. Emphasis was placed on the action of denial without addressing the heart. Why am I doing this, first of all? No matter how much one gives to the poor and to important and necessary institutions and programs, if it is done without love, it was probably better left undone. It is worth nothing. Paul's choice of words here is impressive and important. He compares everything to nothing, infinity to zero. It is the height of hyperbole, and it, would, and, it, and it would communicate with us and to the Corinthians this very concept, that there's not a gradation here. There's no gray area. You either are walking in the love of the Spirit, or you are not. So this, um, it, this is not to say that one shouldn't give to those institutions and needs, but it is to say that one would do well to cultivate that heart of love that truly wants to give and serve 
The word forgive here, the word forgive here is a Greek word that means to dole out in small quantities in a systematic and timely fashion. This implies careful forethought for the needs of others over time. If done without love, though, Paul says it is worthless. Remember that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, Jesus cautioned his followers to give in secret. This would help protect against false motives. If we give in secret, looking for no acclamation, no self-imputation of worth, but just in service to God and to others, it's far more effective. This idea of giving one's body to be burned, by the way, has a couple of different possibilities. Some believe that he was referring to giving oneself into slavery. Upon becoming a slave, a new slave was branded with a, with a hot iron. However, and as I studied and read and looked over commentaries, most of the commentators agree, or I couldn't find any that didn't agree, um, he's, he's speaking in an extra hyperbolic way here. He's speaking way over the top in, in a manner of speaking. Someone who gave their body to be burned, the idea was someone whose body would be burned up. Uh, that would be given, they would be burned up at the stake while standing in it for a position or a belief that they held sacred. Even doing this, Paul said, without love, was worth nothing. Zip, zero, nada. Am I communicating the, the nothingness here? It's, the scripture communicates it far better as we just read it. So no matter how much one suffers because of their Christian service, if that service is done without a heart of love, the suffering was worth nothing. The service was worth nothing. What am I saying here this morning? Fortunately, this is a biblical Christian church who understands this concept. But there are so many misunderstandings of what the word love means. We think love means never arguing with anybody, never pointing out where they are wrong. It means accepting everything they say and everything they do. That's not love. That's being a chicken. At any rate, that's luff. Walter Martin called it luff. And he, I think he raised up on his feet when he said it that way too. Luff. It's useless. True love takes into context the situation, the person, and how you can best help them, how you can best meet their needs. And sometimes it is with a warning. Sometimes it's with a meal. Sometimes it's with a hug. Sometimes it's with a a dollar bill or two. There are a million and seven ways to communicate love. But the important thing Paul says is that it has to come from the heart. It has to be a walking out, a living out of the, the Spirit of God's work in you day by day, working out your salvation but with fear and trembling as you love others, as you care for others, and as you show them with, with deeds and action as well as with words. And so we're going to go through in the, in the next few weeks, we're going to go through um, all of the petals that are on the love rose. And we're going to pull them off one by one. But there's some really good glue I hear available. And it's, it's called Holy Spirit glue. He'll glue it all back together as we finish up this chapter. So we'll understand what it means to love and how it means to love. And I think probably most of you, if not all of you in here, already do. So this will be a good refresher a good reminder and a good encouragement for the things that you've been doing by the Spirit of God over the years that have been bringing Him glory, that have been bringing people into the household of faith, and that have been spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love. It's a word that is fraught with meaning, a word that is just overflowing with 
you and with your Son and with the Holy Spirit. And so as we study it, let us not romanticize it. Let us not uh, put it, try to put it into any package or compartment. But rather, Lord, we ask that you would show us how your love, as you've put in this section of 1 Corinthians, right in between the difficulties that the Corinthians were facing, becomes the superstructure for everything we do in life, for everything we say and how we communicate the gospel, how we respond to others, and how we take the gospel of the, word, the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, into our families, and, Lord, how we live it out through our, our lives, energized, if that's a proper word, not sure I've chosen the proper word there, Lord, but, but given a power by the Spirit of God that will actually res result in something and not nothing when we do it on our own. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.